Good morning. Let's begin with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that your Holy Spirit will join us, that we can really understand the truth about your character, your kingdom, your methods, your principles, and that we can be made effective in communicating this so we can help free minds to come back to the way you've designed us to operate. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number 12 in the quarterly, The Sanctuary, and the title this week is The Cosmic Conflict Over God's Character. And I want to start out by giving kudos to the lesson for actually including this as a topic in the quarterly. Um, I'm very happy that they, did, that they did that in recognizing and acknowledging that this is the central issue in the war. This is the central issue in the conflict. And uh, before we get into it, I just thought I'd throw out some guidelines that I like to use when we're determining the difference between various ideas about God. And so I put these bulleted in the notes for those who get the notes. And here's the guidelines that I kind of use to help determine. One, Jesus is God in human flesh. Therefore, Jesus is the clearest picture of God and God's character. So Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. So if we have some idea about God that contradicts what Jesus revealed, we should seriously question that. Two, God is love. Every other aspect of his character that we talk about, his Knowledge, his power, every other aspect is a manifestation of his nature, his character of love. So it's a distortion to say God is not only loving, he is also just. We can be loving, we are not love. To say God is loving, we reduce him from love to to loving. And to say God is not only loving, he's also just actually is nonsense when you understand that his justice is a manifestation of his love. It would be like saying this, God is not only creator, he's the one who made everything. You see how that's really nonsense, isn't it? That's what it's like to say that God is not only loving, he's also just. Because love always does what is right. Always does what is right. And that is the just thing. So love is always just. Um. God's law is an expression of his character of love, which is the principle of giving. Any doctrine which has God acting contrary to his character of love would be false. Love requires genuine freedom, therefore God never uses coercion. Any doctrine which has God in the role of coercing people would be a lie. God is the source of all truth, therefore any doctrine which has God deceiving people would be a lie. God is the source of life. Any doctrine which has God as the source of death would be a lie. God inflicting death. And we're talking here about the death as God or the Bible defines it, which is the eternal death, not the temporary sleep in the grave that even the righteous suffer. We're talking the death that's the wages of sin. If we put that as God inflicting it, that would be incorrect and would distort the character of God. We must also use the integrative evidence-based approach, which integrates as much as our brains can assimilate, and I would encourage you to assimilate as much as the data points as you can. If you think about a jigsaw puzzle, and every piece of the puzzle has, has a little bit of data on it to help you see the bigger picture. The more pieces you can put in, the more clear the picture becomes. Does that make sense? And so the scripture record God has given us is like that jigsaw puzzle. The more the data points you can assimilate into your mind, the clearer the picture becomes of what we're trying to see. And then we want to harmonize that inspired record with itself and with God's revelation in nature and experience, the three threads that he's provided for us. And then finally, we must remember that God is infinite and we are finite so that whatever conclusions we currently hold, we want to be open to advancing and moving forward in our conclusions as more evidence and truth. We don't want to set down our anchors and then begin defending any new insights that should present themselves. This is why we have so much division in Christianity, because nobody's willing to advance beyond a certain point that they were raised with. Alrighty, with all those guidelines, anybody uncomfortable with those guidelines? Okay. So let's move on and look at Sabbath's lesson. The first sentence uh, in, the, in the second paragraph says, the centru- central to this controversy is the sanctuary. How is this true? Well, if we use the Bible understanding, the Bible understanding of the sanctuary, the true sanctuary, the heavenly sanctuary, 
the sanctuary that was not built with human hands, built by God in Eden. What is that sanctuary? The sanctuary where the Holy Spirit dwells. That's exactly right. It's the sanctuary of the human soul, the living being. Both individually, we are sanctuaries, and corporately, we become a temple built together um, for a house for the Lord, as the, as the Bible teaches. When we understand that is the sanctuary, then and what is then the central issue in the war? Second Corinthians 10, 3-5. It's one of our favorite texts. For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons have divine power to demolish. Strongholds we demolish. Everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. So we understand the sanctuary is the sanctuary for the spirit, the place where the spirit dwells, the living soul. The war is over the knowledge of God. And then we, we recognize that Satan is the father of lies. Where do lies have their power? In our mind. In, our mind, in the spirit temples where they have their power. Um, Satan wasn't, tr- wasn't writing graffiti on the walls of, the te- of a building in heaven. When you think defiling the heavenly sanctuary, he wasn't writing graffiti up there. He was putting graffiti, if you will, in our minds about God, getting us to see God in ugly and perverse ways. That's where he was defiling the temple. Further, where does Satan want to actually enthrone himself? Does he want to sit in a building made out of inanimate materials on a throne? No, he wants to enthrone himself or in our minds or the minds of intelligent beings or dethrone God out of the affections and put himself there. God's weapons are truth, love, freedom. And where do those weapons have power? In our minds and hearts. Again, notice, so the sanctuary is central when you understand the sanctuary is actually constructed out of living beings and the wars over concepts and ideas and methods and the way we live. Sunday's lesson, it talks about a revolt in heaven. And I want to consider this idea. And I'm going to tell you, this lesson for me brought to light again the tensions that I often find myself in in teaching out of the quarterly. And I just kind of want to tell you about those tensions because I, I get feedback from around the world from people. And my tension is this. Do I go by the quarterly, take it paragraph by paragraph, read it, analyze it, critique it, uh, or do I take the theme and just go ahead and promote my, our understanding, my understanding of what this theme and the truth really is, which then doesn't really go by the quarterly. It ends up going down different trails. And if I go down the, the trail of just presenting the truth as I understand it, um, then sometimes people go, you know, you're not going by the quarterly. If I go by the quarterly, it often ends up with me getting feedback, you're just so critical. So there's a tension. To, so today I thought we would start by actually... Um, looking at some historic documents. Some historic documents of our church. And I'll read a paragraph and then we'll analyze the paragraph. We're going to go through slowly and analyze what is this revolt in heaven about? What did our church actually originally understand this to be? And I'll let you, if we have time, we'll get to the quarterly, and you'll notice there's a stark contrast between what was what was initially the message and the perspectives we held and what's actually being presented today. They're not the same, but I'm not going to just directly go into the quarterly. I've got it in the notes. I'm just not sure we're going to get there. So if you think about this war in heaven, this war that we've already talked about, this this conflict over ideas, you understand that, number one, when Lucifer began his rebellion, it was not a, a fight over physical power and might. He didn't challenge God to an arm wrestling contest. I've got more power than you. It also wasn't over the things we call sins on earth. The angels were not tempted with drugs and gambling and sex and, and all these things that we, or embezzlement or, or you know, uh, you know, divvying up mortgages and selling them fraudulently. I mean, they were not uh, tempted with this kind of stuff. It's all centered on who do you trust? This is what the issue was about. And so he attacks God's character in heaven. Any thoughts, before we actually get to the historic documents, any thoughts on how he did that? What was the central distortion that he put forward about God? God is like what? There you go. You couldn't have said it. I summed up one word. That's it. And we're going to go through the subtleties, but as we go through, I want you to, to contrast as the event is being described, if it's true, what kind of a being would, that, would God be to practice or, or do this type of thing? Basically, he's going to say, God makes up rules because he's powerful, and he enforces those rules and makes us do stuff against our will. That's basically the allegations that Satan made in heaven. So two chapters we're going to kind of uh, visit. One is out of a book called Patriarchs and Prophets, the first chapter, Why Sin Was Permitted. 
And the second is Desire of Ages, it is finished. And we'll go through just and, and, and see if we can get a handle on this. So paragraph and then talk, paragraph and then talk. It says, God, first, first paragraph in the book, which is also the first paragraph in a five-book series, and the first three words in this book are the last three words at the end of the book five, five books later. Yep, and he knows what those three words are. God is love. And everything in between in the entire series is designed to help us see one thing. God is love. So it starts out, God is love. His nature, his law is love. It ever has been, it ever will be. The high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose ways are everlasting, changes not. With him is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. First paragraph. Think of the meaning. So what is the, fir- what is the first and the last and the always central truth about God? First, last, and always. God is love. What is God's law? Always has been, always will be. It's love. Does God ever change from love? So if you just take this one paragraph, just this one paragraph, and you contemplate it, and you settle on it, and you think about the meaning of it, and you make conclusions on it, God is love, his law is an expression of love, he never changes, it never changes, then you can actually already have a framework to start dividing certain theories about God. When certain representations of God are put forward that put him in a light other than love. He doesn't change. He's not variable. He's not two-faced. He doesn't come at the second coming smiling with love for the righteous and angry and wrathful and and punitive toward the wicked. He's not two-faced. He's love all the time. You're going to see as we go through how deeply the the distortions have eroded and corroded the the minds of men and and Christianity uh, on earth. So, next paragraph. Every manifestation, every manifestation of creative power is an expression of infinite love. The sovereignty of God involves fullness of blessing to all created beings. The history of the great conflict between good and evil, from the time it first began in heaven to the final overthrow of the rebellion and the total eradication of sin, is also a demonstration of God's unchanging love. There's a whole thing, the whole history. You read the scripture from beginning to end. If you're reading it correctly, you see one thing through there. God is love. All of his actions reveal this. So if we read something in the Old Testament and it's presented to us and puts God in the light of being other than love, what conclusion should we draw? Yeah, we're misunderstanding something in some way. Somehow we've missed it. Somehow we don't have enough data points to see the picture correctly. We've got our our jigsaw puzzle, and we've pulled a couple of pieces out, and just imagine what you can do with a a, a 500,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. (laughs) Uh, You can take pieces, and you can put them together, and you can make them lots of different things than what they're really supposed to represent. And when you do this, take a story here, take a story here. A good example would be a medical textbook that shows all the disease. And you pull all the pictures of the disease out and you remove it from the treatment and the cure. And you just show page of disease after page of disease after page of disease, but there's never anything about wellness or healing or restoration. This is what people do sometimes when they go to the scripture. They'll take a a story in the Bible where there's sickness of sin going on, ugliness of behavior happening, and they'll string those together, and they'll make it look awful. I think we um, often, though, look at definition of words or how we understand words, and as we grow and learn our definition of the words that we're using alter what we perceive. So, for example, God is love, but love is not perceived as being the same thing to you and to many other people who read that same statement. Yeah, that's why we have, that's well said. Um, That's why we have worked very hard over and over and over again to try to help people see love is not simply an emotion. It's a method of acting. It's a principle. It's a design protocol. It's the way things are constructed to operate. This orientation of giving and beneficence that is much bigger than it. But you're right. Love is a, is a word that in our, in our culture is really degraded as well, isn't it? It includes discipline. It includes discipline. Yeah, the Lord disciplines those he loves. Discipline is an act of love. Discipline from the root word disciple, meaning to teach. If you love your kids, do you teach them? So teaching is an expression of love, which is discipline. Sure, absolutely. 
Yeah. Next, next paragraph. It says, the sovereign of the universe was not alone in his work of beneficence. What's, what's beneficence? Giving. Giving. It's an expression of love. So the sovereign is not alone in his work of love or beneficence. He had an associate, a co-worker, who could appreciate his purposes and could share his joy in giving happiness to created beings. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was with God from the beginning, John 1, 1 and 2. Christ, the Word, the only begotten of God, was one with the Eternal Father, one in nature, in character, in purpose, the only being that could enter into the counsels and purposes of God. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. His going forth have been from old, from everlasting, Micah 5, 2. And the Son of God declares himself, the Lord possessed me in the beginning of his ways. Before his works and of found, before his works of old, I was set up from everlasting. When he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him as one brought up with him. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. Proverbs 8, 22 through 30. Who was with the Father from the beginning? One of the attacks on God's character, which is circling again, through the churches, is the attack on the Trinity. That Christ is not fully God. That Christ is not equal with God. He's a sub-God. He's a demigod. This is actually making significant traction within our church in certain parts of the world. The problem with that, how does it attack God's character if that's true? That's true that God didn't sacrifice himself to save us. He sacrificed something less. Number, there's, there's, number, I hope, everybody heard that? If it's true, then Satan's allegations are sustained that God is willing to sacrifice others to protect himself, but he's not willing to sacrifice himself if they're not equal. Number, no, what else, though? Love, functionally. How does love function? You had a comment? I was going to say that just... Reading the patriarchs and prophets there just uh, enhances the whole point where Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because every description read there, Jesus says, well, we're just alike in, in, in so many different ways. That's exactly right. This is, I love the, the Isaiah quote, that the child that was born will be called you know, everlasting father. That's the child that was born. So people who, who dispute this, they ha- there's real problems with the scripture if you try and undermine. But here's the big one for me. God's character is love. Love is outward-moving, other-centered. It requires an object of its love. Love does not exist in a singularity, in isolation, by itself. And thus, thus if, we, if we go into eternity past to a time when there was a singularity, there is no action for love. Love is functional. It doesn't operate in singularity or isolation. It operates in, in um, community. And thus, we have a community of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where their love flows from one to the other to the other. And then together in that community of love, they gave of themselves, just as a husband and wife give of themselves to bring forth life in their image, they began creating. And so it really undermines God's character to suggest that, that God and Christ are not equal, both in the demonstration at Calvary and in his character and the way he functions. Next paragraph. The law of love being the foundation of the government of God. The happiness of all intelligent beings depends upon their perfect accord with its great principles of righteousness. God desires from all his creatures the service of love, service that springs from an appreciation. What's appreciation mean? Awareness, agreement, appreciation of his character. He takes no pleasure in forced obedience. And to all he grants freedom of will that they may render him voluntary service. So, in the first few paragraphs of this chapter, we've emphasized what's the main emphasis been so far about God's character? Love. Love. God's character is love. God's law now is described as love. Why does the happiness, if you understand this now, why does the happiness of, of God's creatures, the created beings, depend upon perfect accord with the law? There is an actual reason why. That's how they were designed to operate. Bingo. That's how they were built. That's how they were constructed. You could say, for instance, if your car could have feelings, you understand this metaphor, the happiness of your car depends on perfect accord with its operating in harmony with its owner's manual and putting unleaded in it and not diesel. Your car will not be happy 
if you put diesel in it and it's an it's a regular engine car you follow what i'm saying because it was not designed it was not constructed to operate that way we were constructed and built to operate in harmony with these are the design protocols for life deviations are harmful in this paragraph there's another design protocol or law described do you hear it the law of liberty the law of liberty love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom. We all know this. You can't coerce somebody to love. You can't threaten people and get love. So with these laws in mind, these are, these are demarcating tools, if you will. They're measuring sticks that you can use to differentiate God concepts that are presented. So if we have a God concept presented where God is threatening, love me or I'll torture you in hell. Love me or I'll kill you. You see, that... What can you do with that? What can you have certainty about? There's something wrong with the way that's being understood, right? It's a lie. Something's misunderstood. Next paragraph. So long as all created beings acknowledge their allegiance of love, allegiance of what? Notice what the allegiance is. The allegiance is to God's character, his methods, the way he does things. We have agreement. We, 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 we give of ourselves freely. We want to live this way. There was perfect harmony throughout the universe of God. It was the joy of heavenly hosts to fulfill the purposes of their creator. They delighted in reflecting his glory and showing forth his praise. How would they reflect his glory? By loving others. This was a delight. And you think about your own love relationships. When you actually have a healthy relationship and you're loving the person and that person loves you, is there a delight in doing that? You see, they delighted in doing this. This was wonderful. This wasn't a work. This wasn't, oh, I can't go out and play Frisbee on Sabbath. This was not what heaven was like. It was a delight to do these things. They delighted in reflecting the glory of the Creator. And while love to God was supreme, love for one another was confiding and unselfish. There was no note of discord, no mar to mar the celestial harmonies. But a change came over the happy state. There was one who perverted the freedom that God had granted his creatures. Sin originated with him who next to Christ had been most honored of God and was highest in power and glory among the inhabitants of heaven. Lucifer, son of the morning, was the first of the covering cherubs, holy and undefiled. He stood in the presence of the great creator and the ceaseless beams of glory enshrouding the eternal God rested upon him. Thus says the Lord God, thou seals up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in harmony. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Your, uh, you art the anointed cherub that covers, and I have set thee so. You were upon the mountain of God and walks among the stones of fire. This is quoting out of Ezekiel chapter 28. What was supposed to be the allegiance of the, the beings again? The allegiance of? Love, the allegiance of love. And what is the essence of love? How does it function? Others first. Others, the good, the welfare of others. Then what is the essence of sin? Self. Self first. And you notice that this, this deviation, this discord began when one began to promote self. One began to promote self. And... How was this able to occur? Freedom. Thank you. Did you notice it said right in here, there was one who perverted the freedom that God had given. Think about the implications of this. There was genuine freedom. What does it say about God that this even happened? Think, think about it. If God were the kind of being Satan is alleging him to be, a dictator who uses power to force his way, to punish deviations, to coerce and threaten. If God were this kind of being, would there ever been a rebellion in heaven? God would just extinguish it. He would crush it. Everyone would live in absolute fear. You follow what I'm saying? So the rebellion itself is actually, the fact that he could get away with this and the way he's gotten away with it, shows that God actually grants us real freedom. He's not this dictator God. Little by little, Lucifer came to indulge the desire for self-exaltation. The scripture says, Thine heart was lifted up because of thine beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by, reach, by reason of thy brightness, Ezekiel twenty-eight seventeen. Thou hast said in thine heart, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High, Isaiah 14, 13 and 14. Though all his glory was from God, this mighty angel came to regard it as pertaining to himself. 
Not content with his position, though honored above all the heavenly host, he ventured to covet homage due only to the creator. Notice the motive, what's going on here. Instead of seeking to make God supreme in his affections and allegiance of all created beings, it was his endeavor to secure their service and loyalty to himself and coveting the glory which with which the infinite Father had invested in his Son, this prince of angels aspired to power that was the prerogatives of Christ alone. Notice the dynamic going on. Now, this, this, this dynamic that I described, does it have, does this motive, does this intention have any bearing on the sanctuary, the defiling of the sanctuary, the cleansing of the sanctuary, our sanctuary message that we're to be giving? Does this intention that you see happening in the great opening of the controversy have any connection to that message? And if so, connect it for me. We as individuals tend to take but ourselves and say our position or our whatever is things that we have created. Okay, so we're following in those footsteps. And in heaven, the intention of Lucifer was to... Do I need to read it again? Not content with his position, he ventured to covet homage due only to his creator. He sought to, uh, instead of making God supreme in the affections of the angels, he sought to get them to be loyal to him. So what's the motive here? What's he trying to do? Is he trying to dethrone God out of a building or dethrone God out of hearts? Okay, so this is the central issue in the sanctuary message. The spirit temple, where the spirit is to dwell supreme, where God is to reign uh, 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 in our hearts. Satan is seeking to to get us to throw him out and enthrone another loyalty there. This is the attack on the sanctuary. To dispute the supremacy of the Son of God, thus impeaching the wisdom and love of the Creator, had become the purpose of this Prince of Angels. To this object he was about to bend the energies of his mastermind, which next to Christ was first among the hosts of heaven. But he, but he who would have the will of his creatures free, that means God who wants us to be free, left none unguarded to the bewildering sophistry by which the rebellion would seek to justify itself. Before the great contest should open, all were to have a clear presentation of his will, whose wisdom and goodness were the springs of all their joy. Sometimes it's kind of old writing, and it's kind of hard to follow. But do you hear what's happening in this paragraph? What is, what is Satan's intent? What is he going to try, try to do here? How is he going to try to get you as an angel in heaven with no carnal nature, with no desire for any selfish intentions of your own, with no lusts or passions to resist or go against, with your own personal relation with Jesus who you love as your friend, you can go to God and talk to him, with all this going on, how is he going to get you to say, you know what, I, 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 I don't want God first in my heart anymore? Lies. Lies specifically though, he's disputing the supremacy of the Son of God. Satan's wedge for this discontent. He alleged that there was no difference between him and Christ. He looks to the angelic host. Remember, who is Lucifer? He's the, the cherub that covers. He is the highest. He walks among the fiery stones in God's very presence. He comes out of God's presence to disseminate truth and light. And, he, and so does who else? Jesus. See, Jesus is the member of the Godhead who, as we read already in this chapter, and we all agree from Scripture, is preexistent, fully divine, fully God, but in infinity, the heart of love, wants to have intimate, close relationships with its creation. And creation in, in finite beings cannot enter into infinity and be intimate. So one of the members of the Godhead leaves infinity and comes out and joins his creation on their level to be close with them. And that member of the Godhead, that go-between, that mediator, if you will, was always Jesus. And so Jesus, the full Son of God, the full divine being, manifested himself in the form of an angel, but he was not an angel. Now, did God, did Jesus do such a good job of being human on earth that the humans around failed to recognize he was also fully God? Do you think Jesus could have been such an unimposing and gracious and loving angel that it could have allowed Satan to make an allegation that there was no difference. Did you know that in Scripture they even share a name? And Peter, it refers to Jesus as the bright morning star. In the Greek there is phosphorus, which get phosphorus. Translated into the Latin, in the Latin Vulgate, it is 
Lucifer. Lucifer, which means bright and morning star or bearer of light. And the Bible says that Jesus is the light that lightens all men. He was the source of true light. And at one time, Lucifer, the created being, was a source of light and would leave God's presence. And he leaves God's presence one day, filled up with himself, and Jesus gets to go into councils and meetings that Lucifer doesn't get into, and he says, it's not fair. God is arbitrary. There is no reason except he has a, a, an imposed personal rule that he's put in place. Next paragraph. The king of the universe summoned the heavenly host before him that in their presence he might set forth the true position of his son and show the relation he sustained to all creation. The son shared God, uh, the, the son of God shared the father's throne and the glory of all the, the glory of the eternal self-existent one encircled both of them. About the throne gathered the holy angels, a vast unnumbered throng, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. And most, the most exalted angels as ministers and subjects rejoicing in the light that fell on them from the presence of the deity. Before the assembled inhabitants of heaven, the king declared that none but Christ, the only begotten of God, could fully enter into his purposes. And to him it was committed to execute the mighty counsels of his will. The Son of God had wrought the Father's will in the creation of the hosts of heaven, and to him as well as to God, to God their homage was an allegiance reduced. So notice, Christ was the creator, is what it's saying here. Christ was still to exercise divine power in the creation of the earth and its inhabitants. I like that little addition there, that little sentence. It lets you know the context in, this, in, the, in the flow of time that where this is happening, this, this controversy over whether God can be trusted happening in heaven. Lucifer's rebellion began before Adam and Eve was even created. At least according to this perspective. This was a historic view that our church has held. But in all this, Christ would not seek power or exaltation for himself contrary to God's plan, but would exalt the Father's glory. So why was it necessary for God to have a meeting, call all the heavenly beings around, and declare before them the true position of Christ? Why was that necessary? Decision time. Do you have to get all the beings together? Do I have to get all you together and declare to you, you need to breathe. You need to drink. I mean, do I have to declare things that are self-evident? No. The declaration became necessary because they were confused about it. Because this truth was being obstructed by Satan's misrepresentations and because, as I said earlier, there was this superficial appearance because of Christ manifesting himself in the form of an angel. And there's biblical text for that if you all need those. Now, about this declaration. Was God's declaration that only Christ could fully enter into his purposes an edict? In other words, was it the declaration that made it so, or did God declare it because it was already true? Yes, and, and many people at level four, we talked about the, the levels of obedience and, moral and, and, and levels of moral understanding. People at the law and order level, when, when it talks about God making a declaration, their understanding is God's declaration makes it so. Rather than God's declaration describing what already is so or making known to our minds, revealing to our understanding what already is in reality. Why could no other fully enter into God's purposes? Was God being restrictive, exclusive, selfish? This was the allegation of Lucifer. God's selfish. He's restrictive. He keeps me out when he lets, when he lets uh, Christ in. He's not fair. There's no difference. Remember, it's that infinity thing. There you go. And this is one of the lessons, by the way, that Adam and Eve were to reveal in their creation. Remember, it says in 1 Corinthians 4.9 that we are a spectacle, a theater to angels and to men. Humanity is. God created this world as a lesson book. Adam and Eve representing the Godhead, and then all the, all the animals that they were to govern representing the, the lower order uh, uh, below them. So below the Godhead are all of the uh, animals representing all the beings like us and the angels. Which, by the way, which, if you think that's a, a, a stretch, which gap do you think is actually bigger? The gap between an, uh, the intelligence of an elephant and, and a man, or the gap between a man and God? Which is actually the bigger gap. Okay? So, the, so, so when Adam and Eve then are planning whatever it is they're planning, where they're going to 
you know, build their next, you know, gazebo or whatever. Why didn't they ask the giraffe and the tiger and the, and the, and the elephant for advice? Were they being selfish to exclude them? No, it's because they had nothing to offer, as Russell said, to the conversation. As exalted as Lucifer was, once Christ enters infinity and the Godhead themselves begin to communicate on whatever level they communicate, Lucifer has nothing to contribute. He can't even comprehend what's going on in that conversation. This is why he's not brought in. This is why only Christ could enter into those councils. He was the only one capable of comprehending and entering. But Lucifer alleged it was arbitrary. That it wasn't by natural order of things, natural law, the way things really work that God made this decision, but because he just arbitrarily with the use of power decided to prefer one over the other. So Lucifer was beloved and reverenced of the heavenly host. Angels delighted to execute his commands. He was clothed with wisdom and glory above them all. Yet the Son of God was exalted above him as one in power and authority with the Father. He shared the Father's counsels while Lucifer did not enter into the purposes of God. Why question the mighty angel? Should Christ have the supremacy? Why is he honored above Lucifer? Leaving his place in the immediate presence of the Father, Lucifer went forth to diffuse the spirit of discontent among the angels. He worked with mysterious secrecy and for a time concealed his real purpose under the appearance of reverence for God. I want to pause there. This is, by the way, known as hypocrisy. How he pretends to be righteous but actually sows discord. And where do we find such activity in human history? Where do we find those who profess to be promoting God's cause? Church. In religious institutions. In religious institutions. It was religious leaders who pretended to be righteous while crucifying Christ, burned people at the stake in the Dark Ages, carried out crusades, conducted inquisitions, Yes, there are righteous leaders in the church. Nicodemus, Joseph Aaron, there, there are righteous leaders, Samuel uh, and others who, throughout history, righteous leaders in the church. But the point being is, where will Satan get his most powerful and effective agents placed? In the position of angels of light or righteousness. That's, why, well, that's where he gets his most powerful agents The false claim of equality with Christ was made possible only because God is love and Christ was humble and meek and kind and gentle and completely trustworthy. And Jesus was the the self-existent eternal creator chose to move out of infinity and enter closeness with his creation. It was because of God's very nature that it allowed for these allegations to be made. And his nature is just the opposite of what Satan alleges. So, Satan begins to insinuate doubts concerning the laws that govern heavenly beings, intimating that though laws might be necessary for the inhabitants of the world, the angels, being more exalted, needed no such restraint for their own wisdom was sufficient guide. The the exaltation of the Son of God as equal with the Father, notice this is Satan's argument, the exaltation of the Son of God, as if he wasn't equal and now he's being exalted. Those who attack the Trinity uh, uh, within our church will use this statement. And they'll say, see, God exalted Christ. No, he didn't. We'll read the next paragraph. You'll see there was no exaltation. But this is Satan's argument. The exaltation of the Son of God is equal with the Father was represented as an injustice to Lucifer, who it was claimed was also entitled to reverence and honor. But now even the liberty which they had hitherto enjoyed was at an end, for an absolute ruler had been appointed them. And to his authority all must pay homage. Such were the subtle deceptions of Lucifer. In other words, if you're hearing this, Satan is alleging that God appointed Jesus arbitrarily and exalted him and gave him power, delegated to him power and authority that he did not possess. But the truth is, Christ possessed his position not by appointment, but by inherent ability of his being. He is God. That's why Christ holds his position. You follow the difference? Yes. And so the very next paragraph in the, in the book it says, there had been no change in the position or authority of Christ. Lucifer's envy and misrepresentation and his claims to equality with Christ had made necessary a statement of the true position of the Son of God. But this had been the same from the beginning. Many of the angels were, however, blinded by Satan's or Lucifer's deceptions. 
See, reality was he's fully God. It's never changed. But now Lucifer is lying. Now we have to have a declaration. That declaration of equality is then used as for the See, he's promoting him. He's promoting. He wasn't the same. Now he's being promoted. No, he's not. He's always the same. But it becomes necessary to tell you because you're believing he's not what he really is. How many humans likewise confused and deceived about Christ and God? The battle of ideas are raging now in the angels' minds. Notice this battle going on in the minds in heaven. It says, still the loyal angels urged Lucifer and his sympathizers to submit to God. And they set before them the inevitable results that they, that, uh, should they refuse. He who had created them could overthrow their power and signally punish their rebellious daring. No angel could successfully oppose the law of God, which was as sacred as, as himself. They warned all to close their ears against Lucifer's deceptive reasoning and urged him and his followers to seek the presence of God without delay and confess the error of questioning his wisdom and authority. Many were disposed to heed this counsel, to repent of their disaffection and seek to be again received into the favor of the Father and the Son. Get ready for this, because you're going to hear this. This is like a common Christian teaching. But Lucifer had another deception ready. What do you think the other deception ready? So there's war raging. Some of them are already distrusting God. They're rebelling. They're siding with, siding with Satan. They're thinking God's untrustworthy. They think he's arbitrary. He's a power monger. And then the loyal angels come and said, don't trust what Lucifer's saying. He's lying to you. Re- repent. Come back to your loyalties and affections to, to God and his son. Lucifer has another lie ready. But Lucifer has another deception ready. The mighty revolver now declared that the angels who had united with him had gone too far to return, that he was acquainted with the divine law and knew that God would not forgive. God doesn't forgive? Mm -mm. How many today declare the same thing in Christianity? God will not forgive unless he receives a blood payment of his son. Or the perception of the unpardonable sin. Mm Mm-hmm. For, th- that perception of that idea is God is, uh, is unwilling to pardon or God is unforgiving. Yeah. So this is one of Satan's lies from the very beginning of the controversy, which infected the minds of angels and infects the minds of humans on earth today. Satan declared that all who should submit to the authority of heaven would be stripped of their honor, degraded from their position. Notice how he's describing God. Uh, Now that you question him, now that you rebelled, he's unforgiving. He's severe. He's going to strip you of your honor. He's going to punish you. This is what he's saying. For him, for himself, he was determined never again to acknowledge the authority of Christ. The only course remaining for him and his followers, he said, was to assert their liberty and gain by force the rights which had not been willingly accorded them. So far as Satan himself was concerned, it was true that he had now gone too far to return. But not so with those who had been blinded by his deceptions. To them the counsels and entreaties of the loyal angels opened a door of hope. And had they heeded the warning, they might have broken away from the snare of Satan. Notice what's being said here. Here it's being suggested that angels in rebellion against God could have returned to God without a blood payment. Are you hearing that? Without a legal payment being made. It was Lucifer who said God would not forgive. Today much of Christianity teaches the same thing. God will not forgive unless he receives the blood payment. Yes, go ahead. You know, it makes it sound like Satan had gone too far because God said, you've gone too far, you can't come back. That's not the case. He'd gone too far because he'd already reconciled in his mind. He was too proud to come back. He was too, you know, I, again, I think that statement, Satan had gone too far, makes it sound like God says, no, okay, you've done too much, you're out. And that was my very next Why? The question, thank you. Why had Satan gone too far? And it's exactly what he says. Satan had gone too far in that he had so solidified his heart in rebellion. He had seared his conscience. He'd warped his reason. His pride had become too much that he had closed permanently his heart to the movements of the spirit of truth and love. He was beyond healing not that God had, had gotten to the point that God was unwilling to accept him back, but he couldn't be healed and restored to a position of love and trust. He was still angry, resentful, jealous, envious, rebellious, deceitful. That's who he had become in character. Yes, that's exactly right. So if God didn't need a blood payment for angels, does he need a blood payment for humans? No. 
then why was Christ's death necessary? And I want to say this very clearly, unless somebody hear this and go out of here saying, Jennings teaches that Christ didn't have to die for our salvation. I do not teach that. The death of Christ was absolutely necessary for our salvation. Why? We'll keep reading. It comes out. Yes. Also, Lucifer then, on the Mount of Conversation, he knew everything there was to know about God. Yes, to him, yes, exactly. Nothing more than God revealed to him to draw him back. But pride and love for their leader, the desire for unrestricted liberties or freedoms were permitted to bear sway, and the pleadings of divine love and mercy were finally rejected. The discord which his own course had caused in heaven, Satan charged upon the government of God. All evil he declared to be the result of the divine administration. He claimed that it was his own object to improve the status of Jehovah. Therefore, God permitted, permitted him to demonstrate the nature of his claims, to show the wor- working out of his proposed changes in the divine law. His own work must condemn him. What does it mean? Get your mind around what the meaning of this. His own work must condemn him. What kind of process is this? Is this a courtroom in heaven with testimony, with witnesses, with prosecution and defense arguments? Is that what's happening? Because this is how it's always being presented to us, that God is the judge. And we have the, we have the prosecuting attorney presenting all the bad deeds. And we have the defense attorney pleading his blood on our behalf. And it's, this is not what's happening. The results. Yes. What's happening instead is the results of the choices and actions themselves being carried to their inevitable conclusion become self-evident as they inherently lead to certain results. This is the outworking of natural law, the design protocols upon which life is built, and those deviations resulting in pain, suffering, and death. The entire imposed legal, penal, model law construct is a lie. Infected Christianity. And, and this church was raised up for the purpose of cleansing the temple, cleansing our minds from this distortion and coming back to God as the God of love who created all of his creation to operate in harmony with his own nature. If God treats angels this way, why, why would he treat humans any differently? Yeah, well said. That's exactly right. Let's jump up to now. That was the, that was the Patriarchs and Prophets. Let's go into the Desire of Ages quote. And it starts out, uh, desire, this is the first paragraph christ did not yield up his life till he had accomplished the work which he came to do and with his parting breath he exclaimed it is finished the battle had been won his right hand and his holy arm had gotten the victory as conqueror he planted his banner on the eternal heights was there not joy among the angels all heaven triumphed in the savior's victory satan was defeated and knew that his kingdom was lost satan was defeated by what what defeated him? The nature of Christ being able to keep the covenant with God by the revelation, the revelation of God's truth. Yeah. Through Christ's life and ultimately death, and that whole process did something to defeat Satan. That's why it says in Hebrews 2.14, by his death he might destroy him, destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Christ's death destroyed why? How? What does it mean? Keep this in mind as we go through it. It's quite revelatory as we read this, this next chapter of what's going on. Keep in your mind what we talked about already. Where's the war being fought? What's it over? God's character. Who do you trust? What do you believe? What methods are being used? Something about Christ's death was defeating towards Satan. Satan is the father of what defeats lies? Some powerful truth came out very clearly. At the cross. The angels and the, to the angels and unfallen worlds, the cry, it is finished, had deep significance for them as well as for us. The great work of redemption had been accomplished. They with us share the fruits of Christ's victory. Wow. Did you know angels in heaven, unfallen, needed the cross? Colossians 1.20, all things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. There's biblical support for this idea. They needed the cross. Because this was not a physical war. This is a war of ideas. Focusing on distorting God's character. The angels who remained loyal needed clarification, needed truth, needed questions answered, needed to understand, needed to have the issues settled in their mind. What does this tell us about God and the way he works, his methods? What kind of being is he to operate this way? Not to just use his power to say, get in line or else I'm going to have to kill you. Because of Adam's choice, I want to be clear though, that human beings were in a state, in a condition 
that angels were not in, the angels in heaven were not in, and human beings needed more than what the angels in heaven needed. And, and, and that comes out here too. Let's keep that in mind as we go forward. Not until the death of Christ was the character of Satan clearly revealed to the angels or to the unfallen worlds. The archapostate had so clothed himself with deception that even holy beings had not understood its principles. They had not clearly seen the nature of his rebellion. So if angels in heaven, these brilliant beings who could talk to Jesus face to face, who don't have a carnal nature, who don't have the, as it says in Jeremiah, the human heart is deceitful above all things, utterly wicked, who can know it, don't have this carnal nature deceiving themselves from the inside out like we do. They don't have any of that, and that yet a third of them still get duped by Satan, Lucifer. Does that give us some sense of the power of his deception? Yeah, it's very powerful. Again, it lets us know where the battleground is. And then what would the key, what's the key, the ultimate key to winning this battle? It's Jesus Christ, his life, his death, the death of Christ. Did, did the angels need the death of Christ, as it's saying so far? Yeah, did they need a legal payment? That's not what they needed. No. We need what the angels need, needed. And we need something more. Let's keep going. It was a being of wonderful power and glory that had set himself up against God, Lucifer, uh, o, of Lucifer, the Lord says, Thou sealest up the sun, some um, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Ezekiel at 28.12. Lucifer had been the cher- covering cherub. He had stood in the light of God's presence. He had been the highest of all created beings and had been foremost in revealing God's purposes to the universe. After he sinned, his power to deceive was more deceptive and unveiling of his character was more difficult because of the exalted position he held with the Father. Notice the process, what's happening. Why didn't God just simply say, hey, I'm right, Lucifer's wrong, believe me, make your choice. Because that's arbitrary exercise of power. God wants them to be convinced, as it says in Romans chapter 14, every person must be fully convinced or persuaded in their own mind. To be persuaded, you have to see it for yourself, don't you? It has to make sense to you. You have to evaluate the the evidences for yourself. So the point here is, because of his exalted station, because of his years of good service, because of the prior truth-telling that he did tell, because of the trust he'd earned over the years, because he was esteemed and looked up to, because he pretended to be righteous when he finally decided to rebel, when he lied, it was much more impactful. There's an instruction and a lesson for us today. What's the lesson in that? Be careful who you trust. Be careful who you trust. Always think for yourself. Always be fully persuaded in your own mind. As I've said in here many times, don't believe what I say because I say it. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm challenging you. Engage, think, evaluate the evidences for yourself. I try when I present these things to present the evidences upon which these conclusions are based so you can have those evidences for yourself. God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one cast a pebble to the earth, but he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. We're trying to figure out how do we tell the difference between the true pictures of God and the false pictures of God. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling powers found only under Satan's government. That needs to be a bumper sticker. Seriously, when you think about the doctrines that are taught about God and about how he's going to use his incredible power to punish and torture and kill and inflict, and then they try to somehow say that's not coercive, that's not threatening. It's love. Somehow they try and say that, yeah. Compelling powers found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. What means? Presenting goodness, mercy, and love. God's government is moral, and truth and love are to be the prevailing power. And that's, that is just powerful. What are the, pow- what are the powers of God that prevail? Truth and love. These are the powers that prevail. What will never be used? Coercion or force. What would it mean then when you hear doctrines that God is required by justice to execute, to kill? The people who teach this, what it means is their minds are still infected with distortions about God. They need their sanctuaries cleansed. That's what they need. Now, we don't need to hate such people or be derogatory because, you know, many of us at some time in our journey had similar thoughts in our minds. I did. I remember a time in my life I thought that way. How many of you thought that way at some time in your life? So we don't need to look down on people, be derogatory of people. We need to help them because you know we needed somebody to help us, didn't we? Yeah. We're all infected with sin and selfishness and lies and misunderstanding. 
But we need to recognize these presentations about God are, are false and they obstruct people from actually being healed. It was God's purpose to place things on an eternal basis of security. In the councils of heaven, it was decided that time must be given for Satan to develop the principles which were the foundation of his system of government. He had claimed that these were superior to God's principles. Time was given for the working of Satan's principles that they might be seen by the heavenly universe. How are things placed on an eternal basis of security? By every individual being so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, they cannot be moved. And that's called the sealing. That's being sealed by the Holy Spirit. That you are settled in character, in mind, in heart, upon God's methods and principles. That you can't be shaken from it no matter what happens. You know this is the way God works no matter what hallucinatory activity or hologram you get put into. You see, well, no matter what the devil throws at you, try to trick you, you know so well that God doesn't work this way, it's not God doing it. So when an angel of light comes and performs miracles and declares this and that and the other thing, and it looks so convincing, you know that's not how God works. I'm to skip some of this. Really I hope you get the notes. Satan led men to, into sin. And the plan of redemption was put into operation. For, for 4,000 years, Christ was working for the uplifting, for man's uplifting, and Satan for his ruin and degradation. And the heavenly universe beheld it all. What was Christ doing in Old Testament times? Working for man's uplifting. Satan was working for our ruin. So if you read an Old Testament story, and it presents God as being mean, cruel, punishing sin, somebody's misunderstanding. God did not punish sin in the Old Testament. What is the punishment for sin? Death. Which death? Second death. Has anybody died that death? No. no, everybody comes up either in one of two resurrections. Those who rejected God will come up in a resurrection and finish their existence by the exercise of their own choices. God did not determine their destiny. But when a doctor cauterizes a cancer, he is not torturing or punishing, but excising dead and damaged tissue. Likewise, in Old Testament times, God sometimes cauterized festering pockets of moral decay for the purpose of keeping open the avenue for the Messiah. Yet even those individuals who were put in the grave by God, and I believe at times he did that, put them in the grave, are not terminated. Their existence is not an end at that point. They will be resurrected, and they will arise with the same current of thoughts with which they went in the grave, and they will finish their existence by the exercise of their own free will choices. And those choices will demonstrate that they have hardened themselves against God. And even when the new Jerusalem is on earth and the gates are open, they still will not surrender, will not repent, do not love God's methods, and will rebel and war against him still. When Jesus came... When Jesus came into the world, Satan's power was turned against him. And this goes on to say how as a babe from Bethlehem, he attempted Herod to try to, to kill Christ. Why did Satan do this? Why, why did God prevent it? I mean, if sin is a legal problem, and what we need is a perfect, sinless blood sacrifice of the Son of God, here we have Jesus, the sinless one of God, the Son of God, born on earth. He is a baby. We have evil men at the instigations of Satan now trying to kill him. Why does God not let that happen? So now we have our blood payment. Because the blood payment was never necessary. What was necessary was a revelation of truth and the development of perfect character. Heaven beheld the, the victim. And I'm going to skip this paragraph and go on because there's some really important stuff I want to get to. Um, Satan saw that his disguise, this was after, right after the cross, Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of heavenly beings. Henceforth, his work was restricted. Notice, whatever attitude he might assume, he could no longer await the angels as they came from the heavenly courts and before them accused Christ's brethren of being clothed with the garments of blackness and the defilement of sin. The last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. Think of the significance of this war over ideas of what Satan is trying to do to inculcate himself into the hearts of beings to be loved and trusted, to to dethrone God and God's methods out of our hearts. After the cross, no heavenly being would listen anymore to Satan. God doesn't listen to him. Satan, uh, uh, Satan can't get a hearing with any of the beings. God doesn't listen to him. Christ doesn't listen to him. Angels unfallen don't listen to him. He's restricted. He's cast down. He is cast out 
of their hearts and affections and sympathies. This is a war of ideas and loyalties. He is not able to stand and accuse us anymore before the Father of being sinful. There's no courtroom scene going on. It's all distortion. In the opening of the Great Controversy, Satan had declared the law of God could not be obeyed. Next paragraph. You've heard this before. Every sin must meet its punishment, urge Satan. Here's Satan's view of God's law. We find it again, right in that very controversy. Church leaders are often teaching this. This is that imposed law view. What is it that's needed if it's not this payment? The next paragraph. Even as a sinner, man was in a different position from that of Satan. Lucifer in, the, in heaven had sinned in the light of God's glory. To him as no other created being was given a revelation of God's love. He knew God. Understanding his goodness, knowing his goodness, Satan chose to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. There was no more God could do to save him. But man was deceived. His mind was darkened by Satan's sophistries. The heights, the depths of the love of God he did not know. For him there was hope in a blood payment, in a knowledge of God's love. By beholding his character, he might be drawn back. Man, I wish I could finish this with you guys. The law reveals the attributes of God's character. Not one jot or tittle could be changed. Why? Why could not one jot or tittle be changed to meet man in his sin? For the same reason you can't change the law of respiration to meet a person who ties weights on their legs and jumps in the ocean. You can't change the law of respiration to meet them. They're deviant from the design. And in fact, get your mind around this. If God were to change his law, it would destroy all life. Get your mind around that. All life is built to operate a certain way. That's the design. That's the law. To change it destroys life. You can't do it. So man has to be changed to be put back in harmony with the law, with the way life is built to operate. So thus, the very next paragraph, we'll end with this one, I think. Um, The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. This man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as man, lived a holy life, developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive him. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, not through a penalty paid. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be both just and the justifier of him who believes. What's actually happening is Christ reveals the truth, exposes the lies, wins us to trust, cures the condition in his own humanity, and then he imbues us, transferring to us, through the work of the Holy Spirit, the very perfection of human character that he developed. His life stands for the life of man. His life stands for earth. In heaven, he is our head. He is our Adam. He is our champion. He stands for us, not in some legal sense, but in actuality. He is human, and he is perfect and sinless. Thus, he took humanity to where Adam was supposed to be. Literally. It's a real achievement. It happened. It's historic. We have a perfect human being that represents earth. That's what humanity looks like. That's the creation that lives on earth. Jesus Christ stands for us. Substitution. And I got this one, one more paragraph. This is the last one. The, the warfare against God's law, which be, had begun in heaven, will be continued until the end of time. Every man will be tested. Obedience or disobedience is the question to be decided by the whole world. All will be called, now notice what we're being called for. All will be called to choose between the law of God or the laws of men. Here is the dividing line will be drawn. There will be but two classes. Every character will be fully developed. And all will show whether they have chosen the side of loyalty or that of rebellion. Now get your mind around this. What kind of law is heavenly law? The design protocols, the law of love, which is how things are built to operate. What kind of law is the laws of men? Arbitrary, arbitrary rules without intrinsic, um, without intrinsic consequence. Thus, choosing between the law of God and the laws of men is not simply about which day you worship on. 
It's about which message you prefer. And if you choose the law of love and understand God's design protocol, it's by the law you understand the God you worship, you become changed. Your character is developed in harmony with that law. But thus, when you substitute the imperial Roman dictator law God, then you can go to church on the right day, teach people that God has a, a, a test of obedience called the Sabbath, which is an arbitrary test, and he's a dictator who imposes it, and you obstruct people from coming to salvation and experiencing a, cha- a change of heart. They live in fear. They live in insecurity. They live with a self-reference, self-focused gospel about making sure that their blood payment is made on their account in heaven. And they're looking forward to the day that God will punish those people who's done them wrong. It, it, the test is over God's law. How do you see it? When you come back to the knowledge of God, his character of love, and how he built things to operate, and you adore and worship that, and you trust him, the Spirit comes and your character grows to be more like him. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done, all that you've revealed to us in Christ. We pray now that your Spirit will come. Take what Christ has achieved at great expense to you and to him and reproduce in us your character of love. Give us discernment and wisdom that we can be fully persuaded in our mind and ability to share this effectively with others because we really want you to come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.